Hey everyone, Raven here with another episode of Plant Save My Life. This week, I sit down with Piper Lindine, who shares her son's battle with a form of childhood epilepsy known as Lennox-Gastaut Syndrome, or LGS. Piper and I discuss how medical cannabis helped him find profound relief from this condition, as well as what it was like being one of Texas's first medical cannabis patients. Piper is now an advocacy rock star, contributing her skills and knowledge to Americans for Safe Access. So join me as we welcome Piper to the show. Also, a quick disclaimer, while I make every effort to broadcast correct information, I myself am still learning. I promise to double-check all my facts, but I realize that plant medicine is a constantly changing science and art, so the views and opinions expressed on this show are intended purely for educational and informative purposes. No topics are intended to be construed as medical advice. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Piper, for joining me today on Plant Save My Life. I told you previously, your story that I overheard at the symposium was incredibly moving to me and inspiring me, honestly, to start the foundation of this podcast. Um, a lot of time, true patient stories like your son's get lost in the static whenever we talk about policy and research and all the changes happening in the cannabis market space. But it's important to always put the patient stories first so we remember who we're affecting with all these policy changes. Yes, thank you. Yeah, thank you. And if you don't mind, would you just introduce yourself for the listeners? So I'm Piper Lindine. Um, my son is a medical cannabis patient. He's one of the first ones in Texas. Um, I am a dental hygienist that has uh, pursued the medical cannabis science and therapeutics master's degree from University of Maryland School of Pharmacy, which is where we met. And um, since graduating there, I have begun working with Americans for Safe Access in a development role. And um, I've been advocating for medical cannabis uh, since 2014, about a year after I started med medicating my son with cannabis, because I realized how important it was to uh, in, in getting laws passed, uh, getting laws passed to uh, be able to get that um, reproducibility in medicating with cannabis. Absolutely. And I think it's nice to know that after you've completed your master's, you're able to take the advocacy that you've had on like a grassroots personal level and actually bring it to a professional career. That's amazing. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's exciting to have the platform with Americans for Safe Access, but I am in a, a volunteer uh, role for them. So, so, um, so, but yeah, working on uh, getting the funding together to hopefully have sort of a, a professional uh, career where I'm paid. <laughs> yeah, in yeah, cannabis. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, it's it's ideal for me, anyways, uh, because it's it's what I need to happen uh, for my son to get uh, that reproducible uh, effects from cannabis to have federal legalization happen, and. Um, it, you know, I've had lots of ideas for many years, and it gives me a platform to execute these ideas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that kind of stuff's important. And like you said, um, I just want to underline reproducible effects for medical cannabis, because that's something yes. we don't really talk about enough is it seems there's a lot of policy. We've come a long way because we do have medical cannabis now, but it's having that reproducible scientific literature to really corroborate what's happening medicinally as well that I think is huge. And there's so many things in the way of that, like Schedule 1, of course, federal scheduling, the Controlled Substances Act, et cetera. Yes, yes. If you don't mind me asking, I'd love to know a little bit more about LGS or Lennox-Gastaut syndrome and how that affected your son. Uh, so Lennox-Gastaut syndrome is... Um... So right now, uh, there are 
I, th I think there's a couple of genetic markers for it, but most people who have this diagnosis uh, have a presumption that it's a genetic factor that hasn't been isolated and identified. Um, so he's sort of like a presumed LGS patient, um, but most LGS patients are. So it's different from Drave in that, and a lot of people know about Drave because of Charlotte Figge. Mm -hmm. um, but um, it's it's similar to Drave in some ways. They have um, lots and lots of seizures. Um, it, it like it, Drave has the identified genetic component uh, where um, it, it can be certainly identified as Drave. LGS does not, and LGS has a longer life expectancy, but similar. Um, uh, prognosis as far as cognitive development, regression, stuff like that goes. So they're similar in some ways, the amount of seizures that happen are, are similar, you know, lots of different types of seizures um, and uh, frequency of seizures is similar, but yeah, um, not as catastrophic as, as Dravet syndrome though, because of the longer life expectancy and um yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I see. I definitely, I appreciate sharing that with me because I know it can be emotional and awfully intimate and kind of vulnerable. So I appreciate sharing that with me. I would love to ask about how did you find navigating the space upon him becoming a cannabis patient? And what were your thoughts, you know, with your son being a cannabis patient the first time, were you aware of cannabis as medicine prior or was it something that you kind of ventured into after trying a few things? So um, we first started med medicating him um, illicitly. <laughs> and uh, in so Texas, you don't have much of a choice. I, well, I mean, we 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 have had a, a choice for him for for quite some time. He was the first qualifying condition in Texas, and um, so he was actually the second registered patient in Texas. Um, so it wasn't difficult for me because I was involved in the advocacy, and one of his physician actually reached out to me before he was his physician and said, you know. Uh, we'd like to, you know, have you help us get registered and, and stuff. So then it was kind of a natural thing where I knew they were a teacup doctor. And so I could go to them and he was comfortable, you know, with my knowledge and background in cannabis that, that he could feel comfortable venturing into medicating people with cannabis with me as my son's caregiver. So, um, so it started, um, I mean, do you mind if I go back and talk about, so, so I think like introducing my son as a patient and like how we sort of came to, to thinking about cannabis as an option is, is probably the first place like that this takes me to. So, um, I'm a dental hygienist by profession and, um, I, you know, my son had so many, you know, so many seizures. There was really frequent that I would be cleaning somebody's teeth and have to get up and talk to the school nurse. <laughs> so, so I had lots of patients and this was around the time when, uh, you know, Charlotte Figge and uh, Sanjay Gupta was doing the stories on Charlotte Figge and things like that. So I frequently had patients who were mentioning these stories to me that they were seeing online and uh, not online on, on media. And I had a patient who was in my chair. I was cleaning her teeth and the nurse called. I came and sat back down and she was a retired nurse. She is a retired nurse. Um, and she stressed to me that it was really seriously something to consider. And um, and she uh, had me commit to having lunch with her that day. <laughs> 
And she went home and printed out a whole bunch of research and brought it back to lunch with me. And so that was the, the point where I really started seriously thinking about it. And, you know, my mom had mentioned it. My husband's mom had mentioned it, you know, so a lot of people mentioning to me, but really having the clinical research in front of me was really uh, an important consideration and like saying, okay, well, this is really something that, you know, there's not a lot of science behind, but there's some science behind enough to like think there's a possibility that this could work. And, um, or as much as any other avenue that we might proceed down with treating his epilepsy. And so, um, you know, I looked into us moving to Colorado at that time uh, in order for a pediatric patient to get CBD. You had to have residency for a year there. And um, my son's physician uh, at that time at Texas Children's Hospital said uh, we should expect him to lose his ability to speak pretty soon within weeks. And so that made me really, really start hunting like for what I wanted to do. And I came across uh uh, Steve Elliott's article in Toke Signals uh, about David Mapes, the Epsilon Essentials Guide. And um, it's a recipe for THCA, um, you know, with cold ethanol extraction. And, uh, you know, said any high THC uh, strain will do and uh, works just as well as CBD. And so that's what we tried. Um, it took my husband, you know, I, I had to convince my husband. <laughs> Was this the illicit market at the time? Yes. Okay. So illicit market, THCA. So I procured some from the illicit market and uh, made a first batch of THC, THCA. And I was incredibly lucky. And I realized how lucky I am because I've seen so many people try something and be like, no, it didn't work. And for, for us to have the first thing that we tried work was, <laughs> it's wow. really significant. Yeah. And so, so the first thing we tried worked, but I didn't know, you know, because it said any high THC strain will do. So I, I didn't know what we got, you know, I didn't ask for the name. I didn't, you know, I was naive. And, uh, and so then the next thing we got, I, I mean, he didn't have any seizures, his cognitive levels came back, you know, he was talkative, he was playing where he wasn't doing that before he was sleeping most of the time and not interacting with us and stuff. So dramatic, dramatic improvements, like I can't stress how dramatic the improvement was. Uh, it was uh, yeah, life changing. But then at the end, when we ran out about six weeks later, I made another batch, you know, just getting any old high THC strain from from the illicit market. And I, I it, it, improved from his baseline before the first batch, but it, it wasn't even close to what we were getting from uh, the first batch that we tried. So yeah, I'm really thankful that it wasn't the other way around, you know, the second batch being the first, because then I knew, okay, what, you know, that I have to figure out what happened here. So I reached out and, you know, cannabis is really f a friendly community. Everybody wants to help. Um, and so people put me in contact with other people. And eventually I, you know, found David Mapes and a friend of mine in Texas, Tracy Ansley, you know, helped to guide me through how I was going to go about figuring out what it was that worked for him. So we had to go through this process, probably took about a year and a half of like trial and error. You know, I would buy a gram of like 
five to 10 different, you know, depends on what's available on that illicit market, five to 10 different things. And of course, this time getting the names of them, but also, you know, this was before Leafly really had any information on any cannabinoids or terpenes or anything. I mean, there were a couple of strains where I could figure out, you know, like what, you know, approximately what might be in it. And that also depends on, you know, am I really getting what, you know, this person is telling me that I'm getting right. (laughs) Who knows if we're in the illicit market. Yeah, exactly. And this was before you even started the master's program, right? Before it was even a thought. Yeah, no, this was like in uh, 2014 or so. So, yeah, wow. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it took us, well, 2014 to like 2015, 16, somewhere in there, you know, because that's how long it took <laughs> to figure it out. So I would take notes on like how things smelled. And one of the things um, during this time, it was, uh, you know, I was really afraid of CPS or law enforcement involvement. So I really had to keep primitive notes and, um, you know, not too much detail about what I was actually doing in the notes. So it couldn't be used against me in court. Right. (laughs) So, yeah, so it was scary. So around uh, 2014, I started advocating and, um, yeah, had um, a couple of times uh, where, Physicians threatened CPS with me because the first time was I was doing my advocacy work in Austin and I asked for my son's records because he had so much improvement and his physician at the time didn't know this was shortly after we began medicating with cannabis. So it wasn't very long that I didn't that I didn't disclose it to his doctors. Well, I asked for his records and she said, what do you want them for? And I said, well, I'm advocating for cannabis, medical cannabis. And I want, and, you know, I want to tell you, I've been medicating with, with that for this many months. And that's how come we're seeing the improvement. And I want to share that with legislators. And she was, so she said, you know, we're going to get CPS involved and we're going to discontinue his patients. And <laughs> Oh my gosh. All this stuff. It was kind of scary. Well, and that was while well, I was in the middle of cleaning somebody's teeth too, but I worked for a great doctor who took over that patient and let me stay on the phone for probably an hour. I was talking with her, maybe more, uh, but I convinced her to reconsider. I said, you know, please, I'm, I know I haven't been honest with you, but I'm being honest with you now. This is the date that we started and uh, you have all of his improvements there and, you know, you took an oath of non-maleficence. So I, I don't understand how you could report us to CPS or discontinue our use as a patient because it has benefited him so much. And you're asking me to discontinue this and um, and he's just going to go back to where he was before if we discontinue. And that doesn't jibe with your oath. And so she thought about it. Uh, she was a great doctor. Um and spoke with the chief of neurology at Texas Children's. And they said, okay, we'll let you stay on as a patient, but we're going to have to see you on Monday. That was like on a Thursday or Friday. We're going to have to see you on Monday and make sure he's fine, put our eyes on him. And yeah, so it was kind of funny. I brought my mom with me and we had this plan of action in case <laughs> in case law enforcement was going to be there or something. That's so, actually very terrifying. You know, that's incredibly oh, yeah. terrifying to live that way. To even consider being like a medical refugee over to Colorado at that point, that's very scary. Oh, yeah. Well, medical refugee stuff was not an option for us. We rely so much on, and I don't know, I mean, you know, Amy Hildebrand and like 
all of the Texas or sorry, not Texas, all the medical refugee organization people. I mean, God bless them because it's so tough when you, I mean, life is so tough when you have a special needs child in general, and then to have to pick up your life and, and move to someplace new where you don't have the support systems that you rely on. Like, you know, I, I have a big family, so, you know, it was out of the question for me. <laughs> and, and well, and also my husband had a business here in Houston area. So it was like, you know, we could, we just couldn't do it. So, but uh, you know, it, it was the best option for a lot of people, but it wasn't the best option for us. So, um, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. So I, yeah, we had, I had another instance, you know, where uh, this, this physician, she moved away and, uh, and then we got uh, put with a couple of different uh, physicians at Texas Children's and, you know, eventually it came to another physician saying she was going to discontinue us as a patient and notify CPS. And again, I, you know, had the same sort of conversation. We had a, a, um, a uh, ethics committee meeting where, you know, she and representatives of the hospital and I got together and discussed like what options we could, you know, uh, you know, come, come to terms with as, as a team to say what was best for him. And um, basically it came to us leaving the hospital. Teacup was about to start. It was like, you know, start launching the next month. So uh, it w- and it was at that point where, you know, a month or two before his next physician's epilepsy coordinator reached out to me and said, you know, can you help us get registered? So I knew he was going to be registered. And then, you know, back to that other stuff, we became his first first patient that he recommended to the Texas Compassionate Use Program. So um, I was surprised that the Texas Compassionate Use Program worked so well for him. I didn't expect it. And I actually kind of advocated against it because I didn't think it was expansive enough. I didn't expect it to help him because we he was being medicated with THCA, you know, in and we had tried multiple CBD products before, you know, before TCAP came to Texas, the the farm bill passed and people were shipping, you know, uh, CBD things through the mail. So we had tried a, a few different things and none of them, none of them really worked. So I was surprised to find that, um, that what he first tried in Texas, which was uh, compassionate cultivation now called Texas original compassionate cultivation. Uh, it worked for him. And then, um, and then it didn't work. <laughs> So then it, when it didn't work, we tried Epidiolex and Epidiolex didn't work at all. And then um, when he was finished maxing out on his trial with Epidiolex, uh, Sertera became in, active in Texas and we went with Sertera, which is now parallel and good blend. And so he's kind of, I mean, we, he stayed with them. Um, we still have, you know, decent seizure control, decent to good, you know, seizure control most of the year. So like he, he often goes like eight months without seizures. And then we kind of, he kind of relapses who knows why for several months, but. And that's better than like on any pharmaceutical medications he was tying. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, on pharmaceuticals. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not even close to comparison before it was constant, constant seizures every day. Every day, you know, 
four to, I don't know, four to 60, maybe. I see. Wow. And, um, and then um, in addition to those uh, clinical seizures and clinical seizures are like the seizures that you see, right? Um, he was also having, um, you know, we weren't ever given. So, I, I, you know, other epilepsy parents m- may know this kind of stuff, but um, there's subclinical seizures. They call it uh, um when it gets to a certain percentage of, of the background brain waves having those seizures, those uh, const- pretty much constants, they give you a percentage. So we were never given a percentage. I don't know how much his status epilepticus is, was there. That's what it's called, the status epilepticus, those constant uh, subclinical seizures. But we were told he was having thousands and thousands, uh, you know, per per minute when he was asleep, you know? And so, you know, and, and he was having, you know, hundreds per hour when he was awake. So, and when he was on the cannabis, uh, those significantly dropped as well. So, and, and that's probably where all of the improvement in the cognition came from, because if you're not constantly having seizures, you know, I mean, you, you think about like living your life and you're doing something and, and what would happen with him is like when he's having the subclinical seizures, he really can't pay attention to anything that's going on because there's no consistent brain waves. It's like, it gets interrupted with a, a blip that wipes out whatever has been going on, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Yeah, so. exactly. And honestly, that's really compelling evidence like that improvement's incredibly compelling and it puts the doctors in a undeniable position. They can't really deny the medicinal properties, especially with teacup, which it took me a minute to realize teacup's the Texas Compassionate Use Program. It took me a second yes, to realize. Yes, sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, you're fine. Um, I'm really interested in the first few years of the Compassionate Use Program where you're actually able to obtain THCA and THC as opposed to just CBD. What other cannabinoids and terpene profiles are really beneficial? So, um, in Texas, <laughs> uh, the initial, I mean, what was initially available was not, uh, THCA or CB or THC. And so, and that only has been available since, uh, so, um, let's see, 2019, I think I was working for removing the, uh, CBD floor so that we could get THC dominant products. And that was the year that that passed that got written into the bill. Um, but, uh, before that it was just CBD, uh, dominant products, which was why, so, which was why, and it was only 0.5%. So, which is why I was like, oh gosh, like, I'm really surprised this worked. So I don't know. And then we also don't have to have, uh, COAs. And so, uh, don't, know what the cannabinoid profile or the terpene profile is on any of this stuff. And a lot of these companies, um, you know, can, can make changes like whenever they, whenever they see fit. So one of the things is Texas original, um, which was compassionate cultivation at the time, um, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of great things, uh, from them, but initially they were offering just CBD, isolate. So without any terpenes. And then, um, I prodded them to, uh, add 
you know, it's like my son needs terpenes, you know, <laughs> can, can you, I mean, I know this because of our experience. So can you get a product with terpenes? And, and when they started adding, they called it CBD plus. So they had CBD pure and CBD plus, uh, you know, they were great open about everything. They gave me tours of the dispensary and the grow and everything like multiple times. Uh, but I was disappointed to find out that they don't grow the same thing every time. They just were taking the terpenes. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, isolate the CBD and they've got the terpenes separate and then they take the terpenes out and add them back in, but it was from whatever they were breeding at the time. And they were be breeding like four different multiple, you know, things at one time. So it's like, what, what terpenes am I getting here? Like, I don't even know. And they're changing all the time. So, you know, is that the reason we're having uh, difficulty in, in getting consistency? And then, um, so, I, I mean, that's why I went with Sertero when they came about, because they really talked a lot about terpenes. And so even though they didn't share what terpenes, um, uh, they did, uh, they did indicate that they had, you know, value for creating consistency with the terpene profile. And that was, you know, important, important for us, but, you know, now after going through the MCST program and, you know, going to all these conferences and hearing all these speakers, especially Debbie Mary is like, uh, at the cannabis science conference, I, you know, I think, well, are these like minor cannabinoids that are important to him? What's important to him? Like all this time I've assumed that it was the terpene profile, but maybe it's not even the terpene profile. Maybe it's minor cannabinoids that are important in there. And yeah, there's so much discovery that needs to be done with cannabis, I think, in order to get that consistency. And a big part of it is, uh, you know, making the public available through the COAs. And, and, you know, to be honest, like we don't have, I don't, you know, there's, I, I doubt, you know, not, I doubt, I'm, I'm confident that there's nowhere that requires uh, minor cannabinoids because there's not really a lot of uh, capability of even testing for minor cannabinoids right now because of lack of reference standards and things like that, that, uh, you know, we really can't figure out <laughs> what in this is, is effective for helping not just seizures, but whatever, whatever it is that you're, you know, we're trying to help. So, you know, yeah, I think uh, that's one of the important things I feel like in, in working, uh, with ASA for uh, advocating for the the research that we need in order to be able to, you know, I mean, there's so many issues, but, you know, that federal status changing uh, is what we need to unlock the funds that we need to start testing and developing some nationwide standards for testing and recording and tracking. And this is what I feel like we should be making, I mean, I don't know that Americans for Safe Access shares this, but I feel that real world evidence is an important backbone to creating that, uh, the, the clinical study design that we need to be able to, I mean, you know, otherwise it's just a stab in the dark. We have so many different combinations that are potentially there that we need to be able to get, you know, AI involved in saying, so, 
these, if patients are tracking, these are the things that we should be looking at to narrow it down in order to design the clinical research. So it's, it's a big, big, big research endeavor to figure out even just one disease, uh, let alone all of the diseases that uh, cannabis can potentially uh, be therapeutic for. It's like <laughs> mind-bogglingly huge, you know? It is. it is. It's truly a monumental task, you know? And yes. like you said, there's still a lot of discovery to be done, um, especially when it comes to the minor cannabinoids, the terpenes, how they play all together. I mean, there's almost an infinite amount of combinations of those and infinite amount yeah. of cultivars so that mm -hmm. that nationwide standardization across the scientific field is absolutely necessary yeah um, to say the least piper it sends chills down my spine that they don't require coas down there yeah. <laughs> like that sends chills down my spine <laughs> i mean they require them to test it but they don't re require them to provide it to us yeah, yeah i think that that should be available on every label personally i think you should yes. always be able to scan it get a coa know exactly what's in there because i mean mm -hmm. we know even with testing and stuff there's still a lot of nuances and still a lot of things that really need to be hammered down and when it comes down to it it's all about that schedule one and then mm -hmm. you put it into perspective and look at other objectively harmful substances like cocaine or something and that's schedule two so mm -hmm. i just feel that once we get cannabis removed from the schedule one um, of the Controlled Substances Act, we'll be able to really be able to get the research out there. No matter how long it takes, we're really stifling ourselves as a nation. Um, with that said, I'd love to hear more about your work with Americans for Safe Access and how you got involved with them. So I got involved uh, in in school uh, when we had, I think, I think it was a brown bag or it was during one of our symposiums where uh, Debbie uh, was a speaker. And so um after that, uh, after that brown bag with her, I, I brought a, 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 sort of a, um, an idea about a, an advocacy course to Dr. Coop. And, um, he set up a meeting with me and Debbie and, um, you know, talk about like some ideas I had for assignments with him. So I don't know if that was something they were already planning and had in the talks or whatever, but, um, but yeah, we had conversation then. So that's how I met Debbie, like one-on-one. I mean, it wasn't one-on-one. -on -one. It was, you know, almost one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, but we did talk kind of extensively in the brown bag uh, when she was the speaker. And um, after graduation, I talked with her a few more times. And um, I asked her for advice on, uh, you know, how to pursue a career in the cannabis industry. And it came up like you know, at, uh, the symposium, when I, when I asked questions, uh, about what to do, like, you know, people had mentioned development and people kind of consistently mentioned development to me. And I told that to her and she said, well, if you're thinking about development, we have, <laughs> we have a need. And, um, and, um, you know, uh, there was, uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, there was talk about it, you know, and it wasn't, you know, initially it wasn't as a volunteer, uh, but um, as, as uh, I started doing it and I thought, you know, for, for me, I felt like I need, I need to be a volunteer for them right now because of seeing how financially they struggled. So it was like, I didn't ever, uh, you know, it, it was pretty, pretty quick. I was like, okay, I'm not going to, uh, accept compensation for any of this until I can get to the point of, <laughs> 
uh, collect, you know, collecting in donations, my own salary, you know? So, um, so it just, it, it just didn't, it didn't feel right to me. So I decided to just do it as a volunteer. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so, uh, um, uh, with that, um, I, uh, I don't know, let's see what else I, you were advocating on like a local and state level prior to this conversation with her, right? Yes. Yes. A local and state. And, you know, I, I talk with the federal, federal people, but they're only federal in my area. You know, I never ventured into Washington until I, you know, I never even been to the Washington DC area until, until that symposium at school. So, um, so, but I do have good relationships with, uh, with both parties in my area. So, uh, uh, you know, state representatives, sheriffs, and my sheriff became a member of Congress. So I had a good rep, uh, you know, relationship with him. And now I have a, a new district. So I have a new congresswoman and I have a good relationship with her. So I'm excited. Like I'm hoping, you know, one of them's a Republican, one of them's a Democrat. And I go to like all events that I can make or that I get invited to or that I hear about, whether it's Republican or Democrat, because that's it's important to have the conversations, even if you don't uh, line up with the point of view. And it's I, and, and one of the things I feel like that's really sad to see in politics today is this inability to uh, collaborate and um, come to the best uh, the best uh, conclusions of, of what should be done to improve things as a society. So like we are, you know, too polarized, basically, everybody knows this, we're too polarized, but I feel like if I'm going to these, uh, you know, events where I am having conversations with people, it's kind of fun, you know, I'm like, uh, <laughs> a wolf in sheep clothing, maybe sort of, <laughs> but I mean, that's how I feel sometimes when I'm talking to some people that I, I know that I disagree with at these events and, you know, we're having a great conversation and, you know, I feel like, Oh, if they only knew they wouldn't be talking to me. You know what I mean? I mean, I would be talking to them. I talk to people like we're good friends with our next door neighbors who have different points of view than we do. So, you know, I guess not everybody would be polarized like that, but, um, but yeah, I feel it's important to have those relationships with everybody so that, they can hear what you have to say so they can they can take i mean they're gonna take whatever uh lines up with their points of views but if it's coming from me at least you know at least they're listening to an outside an outside outsider point of view and um and maybe incorporating it into uh, their value system or something. So I think it's important to have those conversations with everyone, <laughs> even, even, or especially if they have a different point of view, yeah, but um, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think that a whole part of the reason why we're here is to talk to people that we don't necessarily agree with. I mean, I think yes. that far too often, especially in this increasingly digital age, we all just spend a lot of time in echo chambers. So yes. it's incredibly important to talk with people with opposing views. So either, you know, you can change your own mind a little bit or maybe change one of someone else's. And then like, I like you sitting on not necessarily the left side or the right side or the red side or the blue side, you're sitting in the middle screaming, Hey, it doesn't matter because cannabis works. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I think is what what did you just say let me see like uh you got me there 
Oh, I was just saying that I like that you instead of um instead of it being an either side, we we speak with people who don't necessarily agree with us because at the end of the day, you're in the middle screaming cannabis works. Yeah, no, I can't remember. I'm sorry. Oh, you're fine. I'm sorry. <laughs> there was something you said that triggered something in my mind, though. That was, uh, but it wasn't that one. But anyways, um, so yeah, uh, those points of views sharing. Oh yeah, well, I'm, I guess the thing that I wanted to say was that you know I'm not uh, bold enough or you know, to think that everything that all the opinion opinions that I have are, are right, you know, and that's like, it's like, you know, some, some of the things they may have to say may, may give me value to change my value system in a, in a good way. And that's how we, how we get to a better place being open to, and, and open to challenging our belief system and saying, well, what's right, what's wrong. And, uh, and growing from, from there. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I also wanted to ask, how does Americans for Safe Access differ from other national cannabis advocacy organizations such as Normal? So um, the focus for, uh, although Normal does advocate for uh, for patients some, uh, Americans for Safe Access is the only national organization that exclusively advocates for medical access for patients. Uh, so patients are the priority. Uh <laughs> I see, yeah, no, I see. Yeah, that's definitely admirable because I, I see what you're saying there with normal it being a more like overarching goal, looking at policy research, um, criminal reform, et cetera. And then mm -hmm. with Americans for Safe Access, it's more boots on the ground, making sure patients are getting the accessibility they need. Yes. Yes. And it's important, uh, especially as we see like some things, you know, in California have changed dramatically uh, with Prop 64, um, you know, and in Colorado and uh, a lot of a lot of places when adult use comes along, um, it starts to leave patients out in a way. And um, so we we do need an organization that consistently puts patients first, because I mean, really, is that, you know, as much as I, I, I love cannabis, I love cannabis, cannabis saved my son's life. I love it. Um, and I want, and, and I think that everyone should have, um, you know, frankly, for me personally, I believe a constant, you know, we have a constitutional right to uh, put in our bodies, what we feel we want to put in our bodies, you know, <laughs> as long as it, as long as it doesn't step on anybody else, what, you know, you know, what, what's the problem, but, um, but being the mom of a patient and knowing how, um, how much potential there is to help my son and how limited we are in our access and in getting therapeutic effect from cannabis. Um, yeah. The, uh, medical is my passion. It's my <laughs> my passion. <laughs> no, I feel passion. it. It's passion's an understatement. Yeah, exactly. Passion's an understatement. There's a lot of work to be done. It's important to have loud and proud rock stars on the advocacy side like you are. I'm really Thank curious you. with like, like we kind of talked about, there's a lot of work to be done in the cannabis space. It's an unsurmountable task with all the little nuances that need to be done after, once we get schedule one out of the way. Um, but I would like to know kind of what's your primary focus in your day to day work now? Uh, so my primary focus is um, helping to improve fund collection for Americans for safe access. And so um, because I've run into so many uh, sort of roadblocks, I mean, you know, there's financial 
struggles within the cannabis industry. Everybody knows. I mean, there's money there. <laughs> there's people with money, but um, but they're holding their purse strings because who knows when uh, you know federal legalization is going to happen. And with 280E, it's a really you know that's really what is keeping people from from getting the profits that they want to see. So it's all these boards, I think, that are holding the purse strings because they don't know how long they need to keep the extra reserves in their coffers and stuff like that, which is smart. Uh, so I came up with Air Shred for ASA, also called the ASA, uh, the ASA Challenge, uh, which is a grassroots, I mean, Americans for Safe Access is a grassroots organization. So what better way to... Uh, collect funds and a grassroots effort. So um, it's um, designed sort of uh, after the ALS ice bucket challenge. So it's, uh, I just donated to Americans for safe access. I challenged these four people to air shred for ASA. This is how I shred. And then you shred in some way. So in the shred, you know, we kind of took the Australian uh, use of shred as um, doing something that you like and that you're good at, or it can be com compared to like crushing it. You know, how do you crush in the United States, right? So that, uh, you know, I'm encouraging people to do skateboarding or skiing or um, even printing out a, a schedule. <laughs> that's, I mean, I think that's my favorite is printing out a drug schedule, the DEA drug schedule and shred it, put it in the shredder, you know? Um, but, um, but yeah, we're asking, and you know, it's great for, for companies, you know, who have uh, tight budgets. It's a great way to, uh, you know, not just direct people, you know, provide us with, you know, some funding, whether or not it's big or small, it's up to them um provide us some funding but provide us attention as well and so this is like a an effort to get not just the cannabis industry exposed to the and, and refocused on the patient but we still need to get uh the patient's faces out to the public and so the goal i mean you know it's really these videos aren't showing the patients but just like the als ice bucket challenge well you know who knows what als is I, people know now but people didn't know before the ice bucket challenge because you know they went to the website to donate the money they find out what patients lives are like and and you know they develop that empathy and so that's what we're after too is getting people to our website where we have so right now we just have my son's story up there but we're hoping to have other people's stories maybe you can share some stories uh, you know some patient names with us that want want to show uh on on our website like and share their story and so that the public can also see so you know, especially in places like California, you know, people think it's not an issue anymore, you know, where it's like everybody has access, right? You know, everybody doesn't have access to what they need, not even in the best places in the country. They don't have access to what they really need to get consistent results because we need more research. <laughs> and that recent research bill doesn't, doesn't cut it. It doesn't give us the research that we need, you know, it doesn't give us the funding for research that we need. So. No, uh, I feel you there. I want to applaud all of the things that the administration has been doing in terms of, uh, you know, criminal reform, absolutely um, drug policy, research reform. But I feel that a lot of them are kind of like skirting around the issue. They just don't want to just reschedule it for some reason. I don't understand. Yes. 
Yes. Yes. But um, I, I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, Americans for Safe Access has uh, participated in uh, writing a bill. Uh, so we have on our website uh, model legislation page where you can read. Um, it's it's quite long, but basically um, uh, it's it creates a schedule six. And as you know, the FDA oversight is is one of the things that even if we reschedule to schedule two or three or, you know, deschedule in general, there's going to be issues as long as the FDA has some oversight over, mm-hmm. <laughs> over cannabis. And so it creates a schedule six and it removes uh, the authority of uh, the FDA and any other organizations, agencies uh, f- from, from oversight of, of schedule six it creates its own regulatory body, which, um, Hopefully we'll have staffed with knowledgeable <laughs> people about uh, people who are knowledgeable about uh, these, um, you know, psychedelics, uh, cannabis and other psychedelics included, which have multiple therapeutic components that uh, in combinations, uh, you know, things that require an entourage effect uh, will be on uh, on schedule six. And so, you know, that. FDA rule that says you can't put anything that's been uh, that's been um, approved as a drug into anything else that's consumable. You know, that's kind of going to be a moot point with this, you know, with our proposal for legislation, which is important to consider in education, you know, in any legislation. It, and it's important to advocate for and be talking about these things at this point before we get to the point where legislators are disputing like, well, this isn't important. No, this is important because of this. They need to know <laughs> we need to get rid of FDA oversight in order to meet patient needs. That's what we need to do. You know, so I am super into that idea of rescheduling it as a whole into its own specific category with other naturally occurring entheogens or psychedelics or other plant medicines. I think that is honestly the best bet. There's a lot of infighting in the cannabis community. Should it be rescheduled, descheduled? Should it be decriminalized or fully legal? Um, and I think rescheduling is honestly a great option just because it, it yes. is a class all its own. These substances yes. are a class all their own that we need to treat with that respect and also those regulations, if necessary, in the places that might need it. Yes, absolutely. I mean, when, you know, I didn't, I didn't get to take part in coming up with this. I don't get to brag that that was my <laughs> solution. But like when I heard about it, when I heard about it, I was like, oh my gosh, that's such, a, like, I don't know. It just blew my mind. I was like, well, that takes care of, like, cause you know, before, before that I had only heard about, yeah, moving it down the schedule or moving it off the schedule. And neither of those things addresses the issues that we have. And so I think that the schedule six is a really artful way. And now of course, you know, as me personally, uh, a fan of, uh, adult use because I think I not I think I know that people uh, use it for fun and use it for spiritual reasons and who knows what else. Uh, but not everybody is is a medical patient, so um, I think people should be able to use it. However, but I I think that it should be separate. I, I think I really think that we need to say these pay these people are using it for medical reasons and treat them separately. You know because. I, I mean, I know there's a a, a, uh, <laughs> a wide variety of points of view on that too. A lot of people say everybody's a patient. I'm just not one who believes that. I think like 
Yeah. I, think it, yeah. I think it's a spectrum on there's certain circumstances where someone might be a patient in the fact that they're medicating an undiagnosed anxiety disorder. And then other yes. ends of the spectrum where there's patients like your son, where it's, there's no room for interpretation. He's a medical patient. Yeah. But I also think on that spectrum are people who are not using it in any kind of, uh, you know, maybe, maybe oh, people oh, who yeah. just use it spiritually, you yeah, know, no, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no kind or, of medical at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you're always going to have, you know, the few people at college are just taking bong rips to the face because it's there, you know, so there's yeah. always going to be that. So I do yeah. think you're right. We do need to delineate a little bit more properly. Yeah. And, and for me, I feel like that delineation and making sure that we get, and, and again, this is a personal point of view, not Americans for safe access necessarily, but I'll, I'll probably put a disclaimer in the show notes. Just <laughs> <you> know. <laughs> okay. So it, for me, it's important. I mean, my husband asked me a few weeks back. So like, if you had the option to say uh robust, you get a robust bill, everything that you want in it, but you have to discontinue your efforts for adult use. Would you do that? And I had to think about it because like my gut initially went, like it gives me what my son needs, you know? And then, no, it doesn't really give me what my son needs because then it pushes people who are using for recreation, for spirituality, all that. It pushes them into the same box as my son. And so then my son's not going to get treated as a patient, as as the patient he is, because it's mixing everybody together and everybody's not mixed together. Let's just separate them. We got to treat these people <laughs> like we're treating a condition. We got to let these people live their life the way they want to live their life, <laughs> you know? So... I see it as distinct, but, uh, and the distinction I feel needs to be made, but I, I know a lot of people disagree with me. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. That's, that's the thing you're supposed to be able to talk with people that disagree. So we right. can all kind of meet on those values. Yeah. Um, what's one thing that you wish people understood about medicinal cannabis more, if you could explain to everyone that's listening, what's one thing you wish they could understand? Well, um, I'm hoping I get to talk to, uh, at, South by Southwest about this. I'm going to be, oh, nice. I'm, I'm thinking I'm on a, on, on a panel. We America's for safe access has a panel on at South by Southwest. And so um, there, that's amazing. Still, Congratulations. Thank you. We're still talking about like how we're going to, who's going to be on the panel and exactly what we're talking about. But I'm really hoping that I get to talk about the, the complex, like, you know, what we've talked about here, the complexities uh, of treating with cannabis and how, federal schedule status makes that even more unnecessarily complex. It's already complex. We don't, you know, let's break down any barriers. So it's funny. So I'm, I'm, I'm a religious person, a spiritual person. And um, like, if you look at any of the stuff that I've brought to any uh, legislator's office, I, I always put a uh, biblical quotes in them. So one of my favorite ones that, uh, that I put in there is that I don't know exactly how it says that you shouldn't, you should never put a stumbling block in your brother's path. And so that's what schedule status does. It puts a stumbling block in our path where all these people who are dealing with health issues that, you know, there's enough struggles that we face already. We're dealing with like the trauma of having constant issues in our home of seizures or cancer or whatever. And um, 
financial issues related to, you know, treating these. I mean, it's frankly really expensive to treat epilepsy and cancer and who knows what, uh, uh, you know, so many different chronic diseases expensive. So why do we also have to deal with going to visit our legislators and saying this is uh, something that's really important that we need access to. So free up the access, you know, so get some funding for research so we can figure out how to save our loved ones lives. And really, that's what it comes down to is like, it's it's saving lives, you know, it's saving lives, and it should not be looked at like anything less, you know, it's, you know, if it's, anxiety or depression that you're treating, you know, there's the potential for suicide there. If it's epilepsy, there's the potential for a status epilepticus that ends somebody's life or SUDEP or an injury related to a fall or a car crash or something else with epilepsy. If it's cancer, it's, you know, (laughs) it's, it's malnutrition related with not being able to eat or potentially, I mean, you know, Denny Mary's killing leukemia cells in Israel. So like, why aren't we working on discovering how to use this? It's killing people not having access. And I, I guess I'm, I'm just really tired of legislators saying, you know, now's not the time because it's not a priority because people's lives our top priority, you know, there's so many people who are dying of these things, you know, it's catastrophic worldwide, like all the lives that we aren't saving that could be saved because of this. And, 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 you know, not just lives, but there's, I mean, there's all of the other intricacies of, of lives, you know, it puts a strain on your marriage. I mean, I can't tell you how many, how many, you know, how many people, you know, my husband and I know who are epilepsy families who, you know, their marriage is, you know, gone, they're divorced, you know, because it's so hard to struggle with disease, you know, especially with a child with disease that, you know, it breaks up marriages. (laughs) I mean, not mine. Yeah. Jail time. Yes. That, yeah, you know, hurting people's lives and breaking up families in that way, sending people to jail unnecessarily for, for medicating themselves. It's just infuriating. It's infuriating that we keep getting pushed to the back burner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Agreed. So. And I think that's really well said. Um, I appreciate you sharing that. I really appreciate you sharing your son's story with me. Um, what I'd love to know is where people can find you and how they can get more involved with ASA themselves. So ASA is uh, safeaccessnow.org and um, the air shred for ASA uh, or ASA challenge is at uh, safeaccessnow.org ASA challenge, uh, slap, I'm sorry, slash ASA challenge. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, I'm Piper at safeaccessnow.org. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Piper. Um, sometimes I, sometimes I think to myself and I wonder if you can empathize. Sometimes I think to myself that the battle I have with cannabis advocacy, education, policy change, and research won't be done by the time I'm done. You know what I mean? That this battle is way longer than my lifetime. You know, it's funny that, um, well, <laughs> like if you watched uh, any of the Unity, which is available uh, now, the footage from Unity is available on our on our website. Uh, if you watch it, you know, Steph said repeatedly when she started Americans for Safe Access, she thought she would be done in two years. <laughs> and here we are 20 years later. And the thing is, you know, the thing is, politics is designed to move slowly. And so like that's something as advocates we need to accept. Um, 
and uh, recognize our uh, milestones and achievements when they happen and keep working. And something uh, Debbie said to me, she said, um, you know, once we have a federal bill, we're still going to have to fight for insurance to pay for it. And something that I've said to her and frequently say to other people is even when we have everything that we right now want, we're going to have new needs that we need to be advocating for. I mean, you know, Alzheimer's Foundation and ALS uh, Foundation and all these different organizations, they're they're not fighting for like what we're fighting for, you know, they still have advocacy needs and they are recognized as, you know, a patient, uh, a patient body. So why wouldn't we still have needs that we're continuing to have to need for, to advocate for when we have everything that we think that we want or need right now, there's always going to be things that we need to tweak, you know, (laughs) always. It doesn't, I mean, you know, that's, that's how we grow. That's how we grow as a society, as a, you know, uh, a a world, a global uh, thing, you know, we, we're always seeking to improve. (laughs) Yep, Exactly. And I mean, the wheels of change of slow are slow, but we're getting there. Thankfully we're getting there. Yeah. Again, thank you so much, Piper, for being able to come on Plant Save My Life today. Thank you for sharing your son's story. But more importantly, thank you for being on the front lines, doing the good work for advocacy for plant medicine out there. Oh, thank you for all you do, Raven. I appreciate it so much. Thanks for having me on. All right, that's all we have for today, everyone. I'm your host, Raven, and I thank you very much for tuning in to this week's episode of Plant Save My Life. You can find out more about Piper and Americans for Safe Access's mission over at safeaccessnow.org. As always, if you'd like this episode, please share it with someone who you know would enjoy it. Additionally, we'd be eternally grateful if you were to rate us five stars and go ahead and follow us wherever it is you get your podcasts. For questions, comments, and community, head over to our official Instagram at plantsavemylife.pod. Until next time, everyone, have a beautiful week.